All right, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this morning I'll read the first five verses. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from, from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This letter of Second Thessalonians, it's a short letter. It's chock full of prayer. Um, there's prayer at the beginning of chapter one and prayer at the end of chapter one. There's prayer at the end of chapter two. There's prayer here at the beginning of chapter three and there's prayer at the end of chapter three as well. And so you have prayer before and after basically every element that's here in this letter. Paul knows the power of prayer for the Christian life. Um, the power of God is needed for the Christian life. You cannot do it uh, alone. And God has connected his power with prayer. In fact, God is so ready to clothe our prayers with his power. That as the psalmist often says, when the Lord's people just do a sigh towards him, God is ready to hear it and to act. And so how much more an articulate prayer with actual words in it is the Lord ready to uh, act on behalf of of his people, like he did uh, this week with Brad, as many prayers went up and uh, were offered up in Jesus' name, and the Lord heard uh, our prayers and uh, performed in a wonderful way. Well, what is this prayer specifically for? At the beginning of chapter three, and there's a hint as to what it's for in this little word. You'll see it. It's the first word in your Bible here in uh, chapter three. It's the word finally. Finally. Uh, finally does not mean that Paul's almost done with this letter. He's not. Finally does not mean that what he has to say in chapter three is unimportant. It's not. What the word does mean is that Paul has reached a division, like he does in many of his letters, between the doctrinal and the practical. The doctrinal and the practical. So what is in chapter two is doctrinal. And he ended that with a prayer. And now he's introducing what's in chapter three, which is practical. The Thessalonian church was, uh, it was a wonderful church. It was an exemplary church, but they had a problem. In fact, they had two problems. They had a doctrinal problem, and they also had a practical problem. The doctrinal problem was that because of a lack of assurance, the Thessalonians had come to believe, or at least to suspect, that the day of the Lord had already come and that they were within it and that that meant that they had were now targets of God's wrath. And uh, so that was their doctrinal problem, a wrong belief about what time they were living in. And Paul corrects that in uh, chapter two. But the Thessalonians also had a practical problem, which was related to the doctrinal problem. And that is that their belief about what time they were living in tended to paralyze them so that they were not able to function. And so some of them were uh, not even able to fulfill their basic responsibilities to work in order to provide for their own families. 
And so in chapter two, Paul addresses the doctrinal problem. He says, you're wrong. You're not living through the time of uh, the Lord's pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And in chapter three, he turns to address the practical problem. And when he does, what he's going to do in chapter three, he's actually going to deliver an ultimatum to those who are persisting in uh, this being paralyzed, this neglecting of their uh, personal responsibilities. And he expects the church to carry that out as a church. So this is what he's going to say when he gets into the the practical matter in chapter 3. He's going to say this in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. And he's going to go on to say, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And so... Paul was going to command the church in Thessalonica to keep away from the brethren that were persisting in that. He was delivering an ultimatum, and the church was going to carry it out. And so this was a a matter of obedience for the church and a hard obedience, a hard obedience. One commentator said uh, he, he was addressing them about an important but unpleasant matter. And I think maybe it was especially unpleasant to them because it was a sin in which all of them were a little bit guilty in part. None of them was untainted by this sin. All were part of the panic that had caused this paralysis and then some in the church were persisting in it. And so uh, Paul was going to ask, he's going to command actually, the Thessalonians to administer this tough love, so to speak, in the church. And it's a, a matter of, he was going to give them a hard command, a distasteful command. But a command Paul knew was for the good of the church and actually for the good of all, including even the offending party, the ones that were persisting in this uh, disobedience. So that Paul would say in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so it was good, not only for the church, for Paul to deal with this in this hard way and tell the church to deal with it in this hard way. Uh, but it was also good uh, for those who were persisting in it. Well, Paul's not there yet. We'll get into that, the actual matter of disobedience that he's uh, asking for. Paul's not there yet, neither are we, but the purpose of this particular set of prayers at the beginning of this verse was to pray concerning this particular difficult act of obedience. And Paul knew that it would take the power of God. And he knew that this was something they could not accomplish on their own. And so he knew it was connected with prayer. So this morning, just think of these prayers as introducing really anything difficult in the Christian life, in which you try and you uh, experience a setback, a reason not to continue, and you feel like giving up. And so if that's you, if there's uh, uh, something in your life that is that way, a particularly difficult area of uh, Christian obedience, then this is the right time. This is the right set of prayers for you. So first we're going to look at the prayer that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. And then that's in verse 1 to 3. Second, the confidence with which Paul prays for them. And then finally, we're going to look at Paul's actual prayer for them. And that is in verse 5. So first look at the prayer that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. 
and they, we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Finally, brethren, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. And it was not unusual for Paul to ask for his readers that he was writing to, to pray for him. That was not unusual. You'll find it in a lot of Paul's letters, including 1 Thessalonians as well. But his request for prayer had a special resonance in the Thessalonian epistles. Because in the Thessalonian epistles, Paul goes to great lengths and he has a special burden for, for them who are lacking assurance to remind them, you're as saved as we are. We're in this together. We're in the same struggle. And actually, the opposition that you're facing is the same struggle that I'm a part of because you're a real Christian. And you're involved in the same struggle. And so, Paul, uh, before he even addresses and, pray, and presents his prayer for this particular matter of their obedience, he says, we need your prayers too. We need your help. Uh, and especially in the task that we all feel so inadequate for, and yet it's our special task on this earth. It's the reason why God has caused us to remain the spread of the gospel in the world. And so the, that's what Paul asks them to uh, pray for. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Now you can look at this from either perspective from uh, the Thessalonians' perspective, if you're confronted with a particularly hard matter of obedience, and that's what Paul's going to pray for, for them, and then he's going to command them uh, of this, first, pray for someone else. That's what Paul tells them to do before he presents them with this matter of obedience. If you're thinking of a particularly hard matter of obedience and you need the power of God for it, first, lift up your head see the big picture, and pray for others. That's what Paul asked them to do. He's getting them ready to uh, speak to them about this matter of uh, obedience. Or then you can also look at it from Paul's perspective. If you want to minister to someone, and you want your ministry to be particularly effective, and that's what Paul's doing here, part of that, not the whole of it, of course, but part of it is asking for their help, asking for their help. In fact, that's kind of a, a breakthrough, I think, and a crossing of a, a boundary that puts things on a different footing is to not only help them, but say, I need your help too. Would you help me? Would you help me with the task of the Christian life? It's too big for me too. The Christian life is too big for you. It's also too big for me. God has so arranged the body of Christ that each disciple has something essential to offer. And they have something essential to offer on day one of being saved and becoming part of the church. Maybe what a new believer, and these were all new believers, uh, who were saved perhaps a year before, uh, maybe what a new believer has to offer is small compared to what more mature believers have to offer, but a little goes a long way in the task of the church. So, uh, for example, I've been telling people, especially recently, especially if I meet a Christian who's not going to church anywhere, I tell them, among other things, in inviting them to the church, we need you. We need you. We're seeking to be a light in our time, in our place, in a dark time, and we need you. We need, we need you to be a part of that. And so Paul says that to the, to the Thessalonians. He's about to pray for them for a particularly difficult matter of obedience, and he says, pray for us. We've got a particular difficult matter of obedience as well. We, we need your help, and he needed their help for prayer, and it's no small help to pray. I know we're on good ground here because Christ did that. 
with his disciples. He helped them, and then he asked them to help him. And I'm thinking especially of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says to his disciples at his particular time of need, would you stay here and watch with me? And of course, they were not able to do that without falling asleep, but he told them, I need you. Uh, in the burden that he was carrying. So Paul asked for help in this project, and he, he describes this project of giving out the gospel in a wonderful way. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. It's actually the word that he puts here. Is, he just says that the, the word of the Lord will run and will be glorified, just as it also did with you. So pray that the word of the Lord will run. I'm a runner. I enjoy running. And I don't run in traffic. I don't like to run in traffic. I like to find trails. They're all over the place uh, in the city. And so I, I like to um, figure out how all those connect up and then do a course and then uh, run on it. That's what he's asking. That's what he's praying for. He's actually asking them to pray that the gospel would do is run all over, run all over uh, the city and run all over uh, everywhere in, in the, the place where he was uh, living in. Maybe you hate running. A lot of people do. Um, I don't, so you have to take my word for it. But there's actually an exuberance to running. And that's um, kind of the way I enjoy running. I'm done with stopwatches and, for the most part, done running on the track. I just like to move. I just like to get out and move and uh, run. I've been running with Devin once a week since the pandemic, and it's just good to get out and to move. So there's an exuberance to running. And the Bible picks up on this exuberance of running. You might remember, like when it talks about the sun in Psalm 19, and it, it compares the sun to a strong man who rejoices to run his course. It's an exuberance to running and to moving. It's also presented for the bearer of the gospel. And that's in Isaiah chapter 52, verse uh, 7, uh, which says... How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And it's talking about the way a battle, the outcome was announced through news is by somebody running. And when the person was running to tell you the outcome of uh, the battle, when you saw the person in a distance, you could actually tell what kind of news they were bearing because there's a different way of running when you're defeated. You're running for your life and you're tails between your legs and you're, you're running, uh, you can tell from the stride versus someone who's coming with good news of a victory with their head up, thrown back and their, their stride. You can tell they're coming with good news. And so Paul, uh, the Isaiah speaks of that, the, the message that, of the gospel. And it's carried by a runner who's running with good news. And he knows he's running with good news. And so how lovely are the feet on the mountains of those who bring good news. He's describing the exuberance of someone running with good news. And so this is the way that Paul describes. This is what Paul asked them to pray. Pray that the gospel would run, would go everywhere, and would run with this kind of exuberance. He speaks of the gospel as if it has a force of its own. We're just the bearers of it. So he says, pray that the word, like it does this almost on its own, that the word will run and will be glorified just as it did with you. And so he speaks of the gospel in that way. And yet the bearers of the gospel take on the same character as the word itself. And so Paul says in First Thessalonians 2, he says, the word of God also performs its work in you who believe. So the, the same work of the gospel, the same way in which the gospel does its work, it 
conveys that same uh, attitude, that same attitude of exuberance to those who bear it. So I'd say that as a, a, a reminder to myself and to you, when you give the gospel, how do you give it? How do you give it? And specifically, in what tone do you give it? Do you give the gospel so that the person that you're giving it to knows by your tone that you're doing a duty, discharging a duty that's unpleasant? And you say, well, I just got to tell this to you. It's, it's one of the things I have to do as I'm a, a, a Christian. Or do you do it so that they know that you believe this is good news that you're presenting to them? running with the same exuberance that Paul prays that the gospel would give it. So even if they reject it, they know they're rejecting at least what you believe is good news. So I say that to myself and also to you to, to listen. Listen even to the tone with which you give the gospel out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Paul asked them to pray for this project, which is too big for him. Pray, pray for my obedience. He's about ready to pray for their obedience in a task that is a, diff, a particularly difficult task for them. He says, and before I do that, you pray for me. You pray for me for a task that's really too big for me. It's the task of the word of the Lord running. He makes two requests for himself. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly, will run and be honored, be glorified. It's glorified when it's believed and it's, uh, it's, it's, transforms lives, just as it did also with you. That's what happened in Thessalonica. And then here's the second request. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. When you give the gospel, when you give the good news, when you give it exuberantly, as it's meant to be given, you expose yourself to risk. You expose yourself to risk. And that's what Paul writes about. He says, pray that for us, but the gospel will run, and when it does, it's not going to always encounter a, a good reception. And so pray also that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Not all believe in the gospel. He prays for rescue from perverse men. That speaks of their conduct, that it's uh, out of place, it's outrageous, it's perverse, it's twisted. That's the opposition that the gospel brings up. And evil, perverse and evil men, that's their character. It comes from a heart of malice. It comes from a heart of hatred. That we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. And that's the counterpart, of course, to the gospel message. The gospel message is uh, it, it asks for faith and trusting in the, the Lord. The, the faith that matches the gospel is a counterpart for the Lord's faithfulness. It's a perfect match. That's why the gospel commands faith in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the God's faithfulness, it's a contrast to the lack of faith. And Paul draws that uh, contrast as he describes this in uh, verse 3. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He's making that a very, very um, stark contrast. Not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The Lord's faithfulness is the anchor to this section on prayer. The Lord's faithfulness is the anchor of this whole practical session section of chapter 3, and the Lord's faithfulness is the anchor of whatever is hard in the Christian life. And so this is kind of the center of the passage where he says, the Lord is faithful. And the Lord is faithful to do what here? 
as Paul asked for their prayers. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Strengthening is what the Lord does on the inside. Protecting is what the Lord does on the outside. He will strengthen and protect you from uh, the evil one. Paul knows that we have an enemy, Satan, the evil one, who is active and dangerous. And we don't think about Satan's activity probably as much as we should. Paul did. Paul did. He, he knew uh, that he had an enemy who was active. In fact, when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians, he writes to them and he says, we sought to visit you, but Satan hindered us. He knew he had an active enemy. And then he, he writes to them later as well. And he said, we wanted to check on you for fear that the tempter had tempted you and that our work had been in vain. And so as Paul asked for the disciples here to pray for him, he uh, reminds them that the Lord is faithful to strengthen and protect from the evil one. But notice, even as Paul asked for prayer for himself, he's always building up the Thessalonians' assurance. He's always telling them, dare to believe that God loves you. Dare to believe that you're actually uh, a, a, a child of God and uh, that you're not under his wrath. And so even as he presents this prayer, notice the way in which he does it. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And then he just puts this in just as it did also with you. They, they believe the gospel and uh, the word ran in Thessalonica and was glorified and their lives were transformed by the word of the gospel. And so as he's telling them, would you pray for us in a task that's difficult for us? He reminds them when you do pray for us and the word runs in answer to your prayer and wins many converts, it's going to do what it did for you. It's going to do what it did in your heart. And then notice the way in which Paul switches this around on them. He's asking about us. And for us, he means himself and his coworkers in the gospel. Pray for us, for me and for Silas and for Timothy, that as we give the gospel, we will be rescued from perverse and evil men because we're in a battle. And then notice the way he uh, switches it at the end here and includes them in the same battle. Pray for us that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And the idea here is that there's a battle that's underway and Paul's engaged in it. It's an epic battle between God and Satan. And the danger is real. The enemy is real. And the spread of the gospel is the tip of the spear. That's where the battle is raging the fiercest. And so as he says, pray for us in this battle, he says, the Lord is faithful to us to answer your prayers for us in the battle. And he's faithful to protect and to strengthen you as well, because you're in the same battle uh, with us. And so he's uh, reminding them the opposition that you're enduring is not a sign that something's wrong. It's not a sign that God has forgotten which side that you're on or that the day of the Lord has come and uh, God has forgotten which team you're on. He's somehow gotten lost and you're on the sidelines and he's forgotten where you are. He says, no, pray for us. And the same Lord that's faithful in answering your prayers for us is faithful in answering the prayers for you. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Well, that's the prayer that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. It was needed in itself. He needed their prayers. He knew he needed it. That's why he prayed for it. But it's also, it's a reorienting prayer. It orients 
their specific matter of obedience in a, in a larger cause that Paul himself is a part of. It's, it's the cause of the gospel itself going out in the, in the world. So this is the prayer that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. It's from verse one to three. Second, look at the confidence with which Paul prays for them. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Paul knew that he was about to command them to do something hard. And so he's saying, brace yourself for this command. But he's also saying, I'm confident that you're going to do it. I'm confident. This is the way in which I'm giving this command. This is the way in which I'm praying for you about this command. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And in chapter three, he's going to give them that uh, command. Paul is confident in the obedience of other believers. And we should be too. Confident in the obedience of one another. We struggle. You should expect other believers to struggle as well. But the basic stance is you should be confident in the obedience of other believers that the Lord is going to win with him. And notice where the confidence resides here in verse four. Paul doesn't say, I'm confident in you that you are doing and continue to do what we command. Notice, no, he says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. He says, I'm not sure you're going to obey and uh, going to continue to grow in obedience because I look at you and I see I see it. He says, no, I'm confident in, in your obedience because I know the Lord and I know that he's at work in you. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Reminds me of Romans chapter 14 and verse 5 where Paul was speaking of uh, another issue, an issue in which Believers had different opinions about what to eat. And Paul says, Romans chapter 14, verse 5, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Tells them to be convinced in their own mind. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. So he reorients them not to looking at the other person. Let's say each servant stands or falls before his master. And that's what you're to pay attention to. And he could have left it at that. That would have been enough to be a solution to this a problem that he's dealing with. But he, he adds this. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. That's the confidence that Paul has in the Lord concerning other believers. And so Paul was not surprised by the obedience of other believers. He expected it. And we ought not to be surprised either. Because to know the Lord is to be confident in the Lord to be confident in his work and be confident in the Lord's work concerning other believers. And so Paul writes, he knows he's going to lay a hard command, a heavy command on the Thessalonians. He's doing it with an attitude. Even before he prays about it, he's doing it with an attitude of confidence in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do what we command. Well, first we've had the prayer that Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. It reorients them to a, a larger picture. They're, they're doing one part of a much larger struggle that has to do with the gospel going out and running in the world. Second, he gives them the confidence with which he's about ready to pray for them about this practical matter of obedience. Both of these things have basically been by way of introduction to now Paul praying for them and about this matter of obedience, this difficult matter of obedience. And so here's the actual prayer itself. Here's the prayer that they need. Here's what 
here's how God needed to work in them in order to make them obedient in this matter and really in any matter of the Christian life. Verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. He's thinking about their obedience. He's praying about their obedience. And what does he pray for? He prays about their hearts. The innermost part of you, your heart. And of course, because Christian obedience, the kind of obedience that pleases the Lord, the kind of obedience that the Lord works in Christians comes from the heart. Your heart is in it when you obey. You don't just obey because you're forced to. That's a different kind of obedience. The Christian obedience comes from the heart. And so, of course, this is a prayer about the hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. The word for direct here is the word for make straight. It means to remove all obstacles and hindrances like someone does when they're opening a pathway or opening a roadway and they remove everything that stands in the way. That's what, that's what the prayer is for. May the Lord make straight the way of your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It kind of reminds you of John the Baptist. Make ready the way of the Lord and make his path straight. He's saying the Lord is coming, so get ready. Make, it, make a path for him and do it in your hearts. Prepare for the Lord to come. So may the Lord direct your hearts. May the Lord make a straight path of your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. This is how the Lord needs to act if you're going to be obedient. And I'm confident he will. I'm confident you will be obedient. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It also reminds me of, of baptism itself. It's an immersion. That's kind of what he's praying for, for their hearts. May the Lord immerse your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. What is the love of God that he mentions here? What is he praying about for our hearts? I was listening to a message on this this week by one of my favorite professors, and uh, he described the love of God here in this way as a Hosea love. That's what the love of God is. It's a Hosea love. And what does that refer to? That's the prophet in the Old Testament who was commanded to love a woman that he knew was going to commit adultery with many other lovers, and he was to love her anyway. And so he endured all of that unfaithfulness, finally her not only bearing other people's children to him in their marriage, but then leaving him and going uh, with other lovers until she was completely used up. Nobody wanted her. And he then went and bought her for himself and won her back to him with his love. And then he says to her, she didn't know that uh, when her lovers were giving her grain and new wine and oil and lavished on her silver and gold, I was giving it to them because they, she wouldn't accept it from Hosea. A Hosea kind of love, the love of God, and that's what's portrayed. That's what the Lord is portraying by this uh, also very difficult act of obedience for uh, a, the prophet himself. But the picture of it is of the love of God and that it's a love for the most unworthy. It's a love for the most unworthy. That's what he's praying about. That's what he's saying. That's what you need if you're going to do any particular matter of difficult obedience. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. The love of God. The love of God is from all eternity. In fact, God is love from all eternity. And the love of the triune God, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from all eternity, 
the love that they had. God didn't need to create something in order to love. He's always been love. And so the Trinity itself is good news of God's character. But the love within the Trinity is so holy. It's so alien to anything that we know on earth that we call love, it's so, which is pale in comparison to hymns. God's love is so strong. It's so different from anything that we know. It's so shocking that for us to have any sense of it at all, it has to be manifest to us on earth as love for the unworthy. That's, of course, not what it is from all eternity in the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are worthy of one another's love. But if we're to know anything about that kind of love, that specific kind of love, it has to be love for the unworthy. And so that's the love that reaches us. And by that love, we're called into fellowship for all eternity with the triune God to forever enjoy that kind of love without ever becoming worthy of it. We're never going to become worthy of that love, and yet we uh, experience that. And in fact, the only way that you can know about that kind of love, the kind of love that God has for all eternity, the love of God, the love for the most unworthy, the love that's pictured in the, the striking story of Hosea and his unworthy wife, the only way that you can even know about that kind of love, much less experience being loved that way ourselves, is through the gospel of Christ. And so the Lord touches us with that love. He calls us to that love. He shows it to us in the cross of Christ for us and his resurrection from the dead. And then he tells husbands to wives, love your wife as Christ loved the church with that same kind of love, the love of God here. that He's asking for the Lord to direct their hearts uh, into it. And he tells us, you're to love each other. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. So also you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have this love for one another, this specific love of God. So may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Sometimes I hear, I think, well-meaning uh, preachers, and, and perhaps I even misunderstand exactly what they mean, but they, they tend to speak of God as a balance of attributes. And the idea is... Well, don't say too much about God's love. Don't go wild speaking about God's love because you'll go off balance because he's also wrath uh, against sin. And so his love only goes so far and then his wrath sort of pulls him back from that kind of uh, love. And I think it's a mistake to picture God as a finely tuned balance of attributes, as if God is made up of parts in a balance and each one is weighed and measured until it's just the right uh, amount, not too much, not too little, just right. And then it's all put together. And that actually is God. We're certainly not to speak, to think of God's love watered down by his wrath or his wrath watered down by his love. And the actual truth is you will never know the depths of sin. You'll never know how much God hates sin, like the sin that was infecting this church that needed to be dealt with actually in a, in a radical way. You'll never know how much God hates sin. You'll never know how that every sin against him, even the smallest sin against him, justly deserves an eternity in hell. You'll never agree with that until you know his immeasurable love for you and the kind of love that it is, that it's a love for the most unworthy. Then you'll understand the depths of sin. Then you'll understand his wrath and why it's right towards uh, sin. And then you'll be ready for obedience when your hearts are directed into that kind of love and to the measurelessness of that kind of love. 
The Lord's love for the most unworthy is lavish. It's abounding. And actually, it's that love. It's that kind of love only that has an all-conquering power against sin. Even Hosea's wife found that out in the end. That, that kind of love conquered all, even conquered all of her sin. And actually, when, it's, when the uh, analogy of uh, Hosea's wife is applied to what it's really about, to Israel, it's put in this way. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So they come trembling, trembling because they recognize their sin. And what got them there? What caused them to actually tremble when nothing else could? It was the goodness of the Lord. And Israel itself as a nation is going to come to a, a sudden recognition of that in the very last days. And that's the, the end of the story of Hosea and uh, his wife. That's uh, the happily ever after. But it's through them understanding the measureless love of God that they finally understand the, the nature and the weight of sin. And so as Paul prays for the Thessalonians to prepare them for this difficult task of obedience, he prays for them, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It goes together. The love of God, it's God the Father, especially it's the whole Godhead, and, and the steadfastness of Christ, the steadfastness that he showed when he accomplished his mission on the earth. The steadfastness, the endurance, the patience of Christ. And when you when your heart is directed into the love of God, you also have the steel in your spine that you need, the same that Christ did when he accomplished his, his mission. Christ himself showed steadfastness all the way through his ministry and, and dealt with all the discouragements of his ministry. He was not understood by his enemies, for sure, but he wasn't even understood by his closest disciples. He came to the end and all of them fled from him. Christ endured. Christ endured alone. In fact, he endured more than any of us will ever be called to endure. He endured the wrath of God uh, alone. But Paul prays that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God and also the steadfastness of Christ. Christ came, and there's a number of ways in which he could be pictured as a lamb to be sacrificed, but he came as a mighty warrior. And that's the way in which scripture pictures him, uh, and especially in accomplishing his death on the cross Satan's forces were arrayed against him at that moment, at that key moment uh, in history. And Satan's forces did their worst. And so the Lord said to those that were arresting him, this is your hour in the power of darkness. Satan entered into Judas and set the whole thing in motion. The first uh, John chapter three, verse eight says the son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And he endured with steadfastness. Uh, enduring all, even the wrath of God until he did it. Christ is a strong man who binds Satan and then plunders his house. And when he did so on the cross and the resurrection, he disarmed rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them having triumphed over them. And so Christ set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He endured all. He even endured all of the cross. What we see is only part of it. He endured the very wrath of God that was meant for us. Christ struck a death blow against the forces of evil and were to stand in his victory with the same endurance, with the same endurance of Christ. And so he says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. And it's also into the steadfastness of Christ. And that's what you're going to need for the life, the whole life of obedience. And especially for this particular task that Paul is going to command uh, the church in, in the verses that 
follow. Let me end with this. Let me end with this. The word that's used for God, the God to whom Paul is praying and asks for prayer as well throughout this is the word Lord. It's the word Lord. You see that in verse one. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And then he tells them that not all have faith. That's why they're going to have persecution. But the Lord is faithful. And then verse four, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. He says, that's why he's, that's the attitude with which he prays for them in this matter of obedience. And then finally, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. What he's talking about here is the Christ saving lordship. Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead in order that he might be Lord in this way. Lord with power to save. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so he could answer this prayer. When he does so, he does it as Lord. He does it as saving Lord. He died on the cross and rose from the dead that he might be Lord. And as Lord, direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So if you're struggling with a matter of difficult obedience, brace yourself. That's what Paul's saying as he prays this prayer. He's about to, I'm about to command you something and I'm, I'm confident that you're going to obey it, but you need prayer first. That's what he's saying in this, uh, as he approaches this practical matter. If you're struggling with a difficult matter of obedience, this prayer is for you. Or this set of prayers is for you because Paul asks for their prayer and then he prays uh, for them. First of all, if you're struggling with a matter of obedience, pray for others. That's the first thing Paul tells them to do. Pray for others. There's a larger battle than the struggle that you're dealing with. It's absorbing all your thoughts. So lift up your head and look up. There's a larger battle that's going on. It's the, it's a battle and the, the, the fiercest part is in the spread of the gospel. Second, be confident that the Lord's at work. He's at work in the believers around you. He's at work in your heart as well. And then finally, this is the prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this prayer for us, and we pray it confidently because we know the Lord. We pray that you would make straight the path of our hearts our innermost being, you would remove all obstacles, all hindrances in the way, like someone making a path, making a path straight, that you direct our hearts straight into the love of God, the Hosea kind of love, the love for the unworthy, the love that is unimaginable, the love that this world has never even heard of until it hears the gospel, that you direct our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And then, Father, we pray that with our heart, uh, absorbed, immersed in the in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ that we would stand in our time in every matter of uh, obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.